Welcome to Molding Masculinity. I'm Tom McFarland uh, here this week with Philip Sipe. And we're back on our fatherhood parenting episodes. Um, it's been a while since we've had these. Uh, well, like I, I suppose, you know, traditionally we've done it as like kind of an overview of things we've talked about recently. Uh, this one, I think, let's talk about something a little bit different since this is our first parenting episode where I am uh, entering the realm of fatherhood. Uh, so we can finally talk about this on, well, not, not, I suppose not quite yet a level playing field. I'm not yet a father. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Well, and you know, um, there are plenty of people who, uh, are fathers who are, um, um, who I would not, uh, recommend taking the advice of. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, to the degree that even being a dad makes you qualified to talk about being a dad, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to that. Like I've I've definitely, you know, spoken before in uh realms of like my own experience of my dad of being like, well, there's definitely a bit of a difference between a father and a dad. Like anybody can father somebody. It takes a little bit more effort to be a dad. Yeah. Like uh for sure. And so like this one we're going to be talking more about like um processing approaching that aspect of masculinity the ability to have children and raise them from a masculine perspective uh as well as you know stuff around that so it should be interesting this is like uh instead of being a you know a review of topics of like you know stuff we struggle with as men how do we talked about that and raising in children it's going to be more of a direct discussion about like fatherhood itself yeah 100 percent and and I suppose um, to come right out of the gate swinging too, uh, something that I'll also announce for the first time on the podcast here today is we did get back um, the kind of um, uh, assigned sex from birth uh, or assume um, the prenatal assigned sex at birth uh, for our yeah, child, yeah. and uh, uh, it's going to be a a boy and as just the all of the stumbling right there i just did around describing <laughs> that is um it's a coming from a inclusive perspective is a lot to process and work with right like or at least i don't know yeah <laughs> no i mean it's definitely something i struggled with a lot early on and i think one of the things that being a dad for a for a while now uh what my oldest is um going to be nine this year and a big um takeaway that i've had from that is wrestling just with the idea in general of um where your responsibility lies on the spectrum of uh you know on one hand there's the idea of like you know you want to sort of shepherd your child into being the person they were born to be as but on the other hand there's sort of the uh sculptor model of like you want to try to transform your child into the best version of them that they can be uh so how much do you attempt to shape your child versus like guide them to shape themselves and you know i think that that you're experiencing the sort of the very first version of that dilemma which is like um there's a whole bunch of made up bs on um you know about gender and sex and all that stuff uh you know how do you approach that my takeaway has always been or it hasn't always been but my takeaway lately in the past several years and stronger with my second than my first was you know um i think you know, the, the thing about not actively shaping things is that you kind of uh, leave it up to, like, it, it leaves a degree of, like, influence on the table. And that influence isn't just going to, like, disappear. It's not like you get to raise your child in a vacuum where they're not going to be exposed to things and they're going to grow up with some sort of clean slate idea about gender and sex and society and everything like if you don't do something they're going to pick it up from society at large so my general take on like the whole like gender thing is like uh as far as like you know doing that is like 
you know, as a parent, you're always kind of doing that, that judgment of, um, you know, explaining how things are and how things could be and trying to help them navigate that as they get older. And so mostly I just go like, yeah, okay, it's a boy. Like we understand everyone who's progressively minded and thoughtful understands that like a baby does not have a coherent gender identity. Like no one's uh, like everyone should be giving you the good faith of that you're gonna, you know, if if your child grows up and 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 turns out to be a trans woman, you're not gonna be like, nope, you're a boy. Assigned, like, but like in the meantime, we need some words to describe features of our children that like you know do have implications as to you know the likely most likely outcome of being born with that biological body is tending to associate with a particular gender identity by the, on the vast majority of cases and like you shouldn't leave that information on the table like it you know you need to like we've with with my kids you know we always check in it's like we don't not expose them to certain things like you know we've exposed our children to plenty of things that you would consider girly or whatever traditionally and we let them gravitate to what they're going to do and we just keep checking in like my youngest who's now almost finished with his kindergarten year is still a big fan of like rainbows and unicorns uh but he also likes you know robots and ninjas and like you know it's we let him be who he is and if he were to start feeling thoughts about you know what he you know some conflicting thoughts about his own gender identity then that would be something that we respect and we check in with that kind of thing in a way it's like just like you know we, we try to keep an open line of communication about being able to communicate how you feel and not have that come with a handful of judgment. But I, I think that there's this tendency that we have, and I'm sorry, I've been rambling for a while, but like, I think there's this tendency we have in uh, among progressively minded people that like, we should be completely hands off. We should like, not, we should like sanitize the whole conversation and the whole process and i think the reality of that is is that that ends up surrendering a lot of influence to uh society at large because uh someone's going to give them some ideas about how to think about that and uh you can kind of give them you can kind of assume the most reasonable assumption that you can and move forward and then you know as long as you're constantly checking to make sure that that assumption is bearing out in practice and you're willing to make the adjustment to um you know to the less likely outcome uh as it becomes obvious that that's the case i think that you're fine i think like i think it's fine to say it's a boy like uh it, that may not be true in the long run but it's as true as that statement will ever be for anyone who is not born yet <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, and I and I think there's something to be said too with like um, under it's important for us to have empathy for one another and an understanding for one another. And as you mentioned, like especially like within circles of people who are inclusive or who are trying to be as inclusive and as progressively minded as possible, to have some good faith amongst each other. And to not, in the process of doing that, to have empathy for, like, an element that is the immense social pressure that is put on parents from every single direction all at once in regards to a great many things, um, and this definitely being one of them. Uh, there's, like, and, and, and to be fair, I, I'm not trying to, like, paint a, like, a, well, our society is super unfair to people in some kind of a modernistic way. I, I think it's, an you know... A critical element of a social species is the parenting of children. Um, it, that's just an important part of every single society, which means new parents are placed under an immense amount of stress as everyone in the society focuses all of its cohesive energy and time on them to provide advice, 
to provide insight, to provide direction, to provide criticism, to provide some more criticism. Um, you know, and it's it's one of those things that more specifically, uh, of course, as you know, pregnant uh, mothers on, or uh, pregnant individuals uh, undergo an immense amount of uh, pressure, societal pressure. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll actually go on a limb here and say that I think that, like, to some degree, that is society using its like hegemonic position to uh, deflect some of its own responsibility. Uh, you know, like we have phrases like "it takes a village to raise a child," which, like, is absolutely true in my experience. Like, if I was having to do everything that you know is needed for both of my children between me and my wife, that would be borderline impossible if not actively impossible you know like we lean heavily on the support of our parents of our friends of our community um <clears throat> and um i say all that to say like um if you listen to child development experts um a lot of them will tell you that uh where it, parents have their greatest influence is in the years from zero to three and uh it dwindles very quickly after that so like there's tons and tons of societal pressure and blame put on parents uh and i find me an adult that remembers <laughs> things from zero to three years old yet not very many and of the ones that do it's a few fleeting memories here or there certainly not a coherent experience you're when you're growing from zero to three you're learning just a general impression of like how the world works broadly so like if you want your child to grow up thinking that like it should be good that people are loved when they cry and they're hurt they're taken care of and they're hugged and they're supported like that kind of thing is the thing that parents get to do the most now that's not to say that like the advice that you give your teenager when they're 14 doesn't matter it does it's not like parents stop having an influence but it very quickly degrades especially especially once they hit the teenage years into not much more than like any other person <laughs> maybe yeah. a little bit more if you've built a good relationship with them and they trust you but you don't have a particularly outsized influence so like we put all this pressure on parents to like do all these like super optimized things and like never make any mistakes and like tons of blame are placed on them for stuff when like honestly the majority of the influence that people have in their formative years comes from their friend group and the society at large yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, yeah, as you know, they age, of course, yeah, like that. It that the people in their life diversify. Um, and I mean, and I'll, in some ways, I suppose, go another step further too, in saying that I think um, a lot of folks kind of and and ah, this is tricky. I of course think that it is. Uh, valuable and wise to educate yourself as extensively as possible. Uh, I am reading books right now and, 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 you know, you know, talking to people and I'm doing my, you know, I'm doing research and study on trying to be as good of a early parent as possible. Also as good of a supportive spouse as possible, uh, for a pregnant person. And, you know, I think all of that is valuable and you should do that. But I also think there's a certain element of that societal pressure that changes things from a, we all mostly generally have a drive to want to do the right thing, to be good and loving and supportive and all of these things for a early child that are all the important stuff to do, right? Um, you know, we all generally get, oh, I should, you know support my child and hug them closely and have a lot of attentive time with them, make sure that they are well-fed, make sure that they're happy and they have as good of a life as possible right now from one to three. And I might be skewed in viewing this because I do come from a kind of community where certain more toxic parenting things are a little more common. One of those specifically being like the cry it out kind of theory. Like I've heard cry it out so much in, not from my parents directly, but from other like family members and uh just generally like adjacent people in my community uh in, in the community i grew up in not the community i'm in now really but um and i feel like that is very much a society like i don't think there are many humans who would come up with the cry it out method 
on their own individually. <laughs> You're not going to be like, hmm, maybe it would be better if I just let this baby cry so that it doesn't get the idea that it's going to get things handed to it. Uh, like Ayn Rand style parenting isn't going to come about on its own. <laughs> so I, I will say that like, it kind of depends. Like, I feel like this is uh, cry, cry it out or like what I think like pediatricians call the extinction method. Um, for that kind of thing. It really depends on the, um, you know, it's kind of an umbrella term. Um, like certainly just sticking your, anytime your baby's upset, sticking in a room and waiting for it to shut up is obviously terrible. Um, uh, you know, like for example, um, like when it comes to like sleep training, um, pediatricians and uh, that I, you know, listened to recommended that, you know, uh, you can do like one of the, the probably most sleep training methods work to some degree. Uh, the one that works the best is what they call graduated extinction, which is a version of cry it out in a sense, but it's specifically one that is like includes like all, all the good cry it out methods, right. Are the ones that include periodic check-ins to make sure that needs are being met. You get them, you make sure that they're fed, that they're changed, that they're, you know, good. And then if they're still upset, then and there's nothing you can do about the thing that they're upset about. They're going to have to learn to soothe themselves uh, as a skill. And you have to like, you know, fundamentally, you know, a parent that is like exhausted and mentally shot from, uh, from staying up all night listening to a baby scream at them over something they can't do anything about is not going to be an effective parent for very long. Um, and so like graduate extinction was the thing that was recommended to me by the pediatricians that I talked to, which was um, uh, basically like you go in and you lay them down and if they start crying, you immediately go check on them. And if they won't, if they don't settle down, then after you've taken care of all their needs, then you set them back and you set like a timer for like two minutes or something. And you go back and check on them two minutes later, double check that everything's taken care of, that they're not hungry, that they're not, you know, up, upset about, you know, injuries or anything like that. And then you, if they're still upset, you go and you set them down and you, you know, wait for four minutes this time. And you just like keep spacing out the thing. Uh, and that worked out pretty well for my kids. Um, and it gave kind of a structure to a thing that was like very, it's very, very, very easy on the early years to get sucked into a lot of things that come across with like very easy answers because the fundamental reality is like, it is very, very hard to take care of an infant. Uh, they put about as much pressure on you uh, emotionally and physically as a human being can. Um, and um, on, on top of with which they make their only form of communication screaming if they don't feel. Um, I, I like the, the quote from John Green that I've said that I've uh, um, always liked, which is that like babies have two moods, which is I am ecstatically happy and things could be better. And when things could be better, they scream. <laughs> uh, which, you know, like that as a form of communication is not great. <laughs> um, it's very stressful uh, to experience. Um, anyway, I say all that to basically say like, it does really like certainly uh, I've seen people use cry it out to mask what is essentially neglectful behavior. Um, but I also wanna be careful not to uh, lump what I think are reasonable structures and and uh strategies for handling an inconsolable baby um in a way that gives the parents permission to not have someone screaming at them for you know 16 hours straight um in a way that's also not neglectful and like lump that in with like active child abuse <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, no, I think that's valid. Uh, I think that's a valid distinction to make and, and discussion to have. Um, and I think there's more, I think you just gave me more nuance than I really uh, fully understood. And, and, and you know, I, uh, 
sleep training isn't really a subject I've entirely made it to yet because there's a lot of subjects to go through. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yet. But, uh, um, you know, and I mean, but that is definitely, though, uh, you know, I say that, but it's also one of the ones that is apparently I haven't gotten to because it's one of the more intimidating ones. Because, like you just said about like it being this, um, as much pressure as can be put on a on a human being, and and especially like you know one of the reasons we're kind of driven to reproduce in our late teens and early twenties is this uh, lineup with our sleep schedules in our late teens and early twenties, where it's a lot easier for us to pull all nighters and to not get very much consecutive sleep. Um, meanwhile, I've passed that point. I've hit my early thirties where. I need that sleep. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, I get pretty young, and I'm kind of grateful for it. I I certainly kind of wish, in retrospect, there there are certain things that I wish I had been just more mature, more experienced about. Um, but I also um, it's really glad to be more physically in the position of being able to experience great disruption without uh, without uh, completely collapsing as far as function function being a functioning adult goes. Um, yeah, it's, it's really intimidating. Like it's, it's hard. And the problem is, is like you, you're inundated with like huge amounts of advice, uh, from all kinds of well-meaning people like that all have, um, problems like, you know, first of all, there's all kinds of wives tales, you know, kind of stuff that is like, you know, mythology things about, raising kids and what works and what doesn't and what's healthy and what isn't. And there's tons of pseudoscience and grifts. Of course there are. Uh, and uh, on top of that, there's the actual medical advice, which in and of itself has a weakness in being the amalgamation of optimized advice for the average baby, which is obviously very helpful, but <laughs> not very applicable to any particular instance of um a baby which yes. like so for example like uh with my oldest actually both of my children um um the advice is always like have them in the room with you when they sleep until they you know so that you're right there and the idea for it is supposed to be like oh you can just kind of like roll over take care of their needs put them back and they go back to sleep and then you don't have to like get up and it gets you more sleep and like which is great advice if your child does not um <laughs> have the behavior that mine did where uh they realize that you're in the room and they really want to play or see mom or have attention and they refuse to go to sleep while you're in the room which it took us forever to even discover because we were so set with all the the, the re repeated advice of like, you need to keep them in the room with you. You need to keep them in the room with you. This is like kind of like driven. And um, we eventually got to the point that we weren't getting any sleep. And it was like, we we're going to have to like do this thing. Like it was a sort of a moment of desperation of like, let's try putting him in his crib. Hopefully he won't get upset for a while and he'll settle down with no stimulation no stimulation and we'll get a chance to have some sleep and he slept through the night <laughs> and it was just like whoa what uh completely quietly and uh you know my wife was uh almost like in a state of like uh like you know you have all these like driven partially by sleep deprivation <laughs> uh all these like uh self-doubt things of like oh no i'm doing the wrong thing i'm, I'm gonna hurt my child in some way and like the, the fundamental reality is that piece of advice is very helpful for a typical child, but our child realized that we were in the room and was very uh, attention seeking. And when he was put into a room by himself, went to sleep calmly, was fine. And so we got a lot more sleep after that. And it was one of those realizations we had to come to of like, okay, we're going to have to realize that the advice that we're getting even from the medical profession is something that you're going to have to, that parenting is, is, is as much of an art as it is a science, if not more so. Uh, and, you know, so you're going to have to take that and kind of play loose with it and do whatever works best as long as you're not doing something that's like actively harmful. My child sleeps best when I dangle him over a balcony edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not that. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you know if like you know some kids you know develop at radically different rates in different ways and at different times for different reasons and like it's just like there is no formula you know children are not a a machine that it's like here's the way to raise the perfect child and it's like well understood well documented perfect science we certainly know a lot about things uh behaviors like you know discipline with spanking and versus you know not doing so are pretty well explored and we pretty much well know that spanking is on the net harmful um as a practice for disciplining children you know but that doesn't mean that like just because we know certain things that we have done in the past are bad doesn't mean that it's like oh and here is the perfect thing that always results in a happy well-balanced child like that's a very different question to answer and it's a significantly harder question to answer and even if you even if that were a measurable scientifically studyable thing which is debatable it's also like how do you even decide what is the perfect happy most well-balanced child like that's informed by all kinds of stuff that is incredibly subjective and so yeah it's a it's a it's a tough one i completely understand the feeling of being intimidated by it it's hard and i mean like and so uh you know even when you look at like a best case scenario i think there is a uh pre-parenting platform of of knowledge that both of us can draw from that kind of it's two it's it's two different sections of the same trough of knowledge that is a technological understanding of some form of machine right so in your case it's computers you understand software fairly well i understand mechanical systems fairly well i i you know cars are my hobby and my knowledge base like i know under you know physical even 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 you know moving beyond cars even just hardware i have a pretty firm understanding of hardware and you have a pretty firm understanding of software um my point here being that i think we both have a common experience probably of having a problem trying to troubleshoot it looking at the manual finding that the manual says well it should um, the average system is going to do this thing and you're saying well fuck you mine's not doing that give me some parameters inside that what are some other things it might do and um i, I <laughs> and that's yeah the amount of times that i've taken bits of code from uh the internet and you know plopped them into a program and gotten some random other error and been like what the hell and had to do a completely different set of like you know there's a lot of trial and error uh in any sort of problem solving thing and i think there's so much emotional weight attached to the raising of children that like um, you get really afraid of messing it up, which honestly, that was, that's one of my biggest takeaways is like children are actually a little bit harder to mess up than you think that they are. They're significantly more resilient, even as really young people, you really like infinite age, like they, not to say like, you know, like they can, you know, <laughs> toss them off a balcony, for example, like they're not that resilient. But like, you know, you still got to take care of them and they are, they are, you know, very physically fragile for sure. But, um, you know, they're just like, uh, they're tougher than you give them credit for um, a lot of times. And um, people should be like, just, just go and find stories of like, you know parents and you will quickly very fine very quickly find parents who you go like oh i you can you, you can have all the self-doubt in the world about whether or not you're doing the you know just right thing to raise your kid but you know uh, you can very quickly find parents you're like well I'm, I'm i may not be sure if i'm hitting the mark but i know this person isn't <laughs> like uh <laughs> yeah. this person's way off <laughs> and so like uh and then you find the kids of those parents and they're like yeah my dad was kind of like real fucked up uh but, you know, I, I tried and you're like, okay, well, I guess like, again, like there's always the temptation uh, or the, the fear that it comes off saying like parents don't matter here, like, which is obviously not what I'm trying to say. Um, but uh, I also do think that like the amount of emphasis and blame and responsibility that on like how kids turn out um it's sometimes weighted on parents a little too much uh in that like you know 
you know, all you can really do in my experience is do your best to take care of them, make the best decisions that you can with the information that you have, recognizing that's always going to be imperfect and always going to be flawed and always deeply informed by your time and just try to give them the best tools that you know to give to, to turn into the best version of them that you can imagine and hope that that's good enough. Um, you know, in the same way that we look at, back at people you know, hundreds of years ago and see a lot of the stuff they did as, you know, morally reprehensible. And to be fair, I think that that's valid. Like, I do think some of the things they did were morally reprehensible. It's also like, uh, I also kind of take the, the perspective of, um, that's probably going to be true for the humans 200 years from now, looking back at us. And there'll be things that I'm not even thinking about. Uh, and, you know, you can't worry too much about trying to reach for a perfect, an idea of perfection that probably doesn't exist. Um, you just do your best and hope that it's good enough. It's not really much else you can do. Yeah, I mean, like, I definitely, uh, you know, like, I recently learned about a trend in the early 20th century of maintaining water in uh, coolers that were insulated with radium uh, <laughs> for the health benefits of uh, irradiating your water. And uh, which, as a 21st century person, can look at that and go, well, that sounds like insanity. What was wrong with you? Why were y'all doing this? Um, but also, uh, 200 years in the future or 100 years in the future, they'll probably, whoever survived, will be looking back at us being like, yeah, and you put all of your baby's milk in uh, plastic bottles. And uh, how many people had cancer from all of the microplastics that you all ingested? Um, <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, that, I mean, that's just it. Is like it'll always be something that that gets discovered way after. And like I don't know. Like I I I try really hard not to give my parents um too much like grief. Like I don't I don't go and like criticize them for spanking me, for example. Like the science was starting to come in uh, when they when I was you know young. Uh, I, but, you know, fundamentally, like it wasn't as well settled as it was, as it is now. And like, you know, they, you know, I, I don't know, like you, uh, another, uh, perhaps a clear example here is like, um, like how should your baby sleep? Like, should they sleep on their back or on their stomach? Uh, and, um, you know, that, that was a whole debate. And it's pretty like right now, pretty well consensus that babies should sleep on their back. Um, but at the time when I was a kid, the consensus was like on the stomach, largely. Uh, and like if I were to go and start giving my my parents like shit for putting me on my stomach, like that would be pretty unfair because like they made the decision that was the best recommendation of medical science at the time, and like that ended up being discovered to be wrong for a variety of reasons, but like, that's not my parents' fault. Like they don't have medical degrees. Like, like they have to take the advice of experts and, and do it. And like, that's all you can do as a, as a parent. And even if you are a doctor, like it's not like you're going to suddenly have the capacity to go do a bunch of research on that. And by the time that all came back, your baby would be too old to benefit from it anyway. Like, and then, like, and then there's the actual experience where where I I laid my son to bed at night every single day on his back, and once he got beyond the age of like you know like one and a half or something, like I'd come to find him in the morning curled up on his side, but <laughs> because he can move himself and he's not gonna sleep in the position like he's gonna put himself in whatever position he wants, so like my ability to influence that is now gone, like. And, and the, with all of those examples, the social pressure is so strong and relevant, like very relevant. Like my parents, uh, I, I, I very similarly, like I we have different opinions about. Uh, yeah, my parents not often, but did spank me as a kid. Um, I will not do that, but I also don't criticize my parents for that because of exactly that. Uh, the, you know, the same thing about the data, but also because we were from an Ozarks community where that was just so culturally ingrained. And even to this day, it is like, it is just, a th I oh, mean, yeah. like one of the, you know, one of the schools I went to still, uh, practices corporal punishment. Um, 
it, it's just a part of like the thing there that it, it's it's so hard to work against that crane as a parent uh, when every when all of your parents and all of the other parents that you know everybody is pushing you in this direction and uh you know it has to be a group effort in a lot of ways it's just really hard to work against that crane and uh i mean like you know, specifically with something, especially when the science is even uh, seems to be aligning with how a thing works. Like with that, you know, if you know, it's it, it is, I think it is an unfair expectation to put on a parent when they are sleep deprived, dealing with a baby, and they have an idea that maybe you should sleep on its back, but the science tells them on their belly. Uh, their parents say on the belly, all of their friends say on the belly, the person who's babysitting that night says on the belly, like, how hard are you really going to have the energy to fight that? Um, yeah. You know, and that was, I think that was spanking with my parents. And my parents did draw some very firm boundaries that even went against a lot of the cultural expectations in our community. Uh, my parents absolutely did not agree with the idea of using instruments for corporal yep. punishment. Uh, they refused to use belts or switches or uh, paddles or anything like that. It was That was a hard line in the sand for them. That was not a thing that was going to be acceptable. Um, and that caused, like, that was a thing of friction. Like, my granny believed in kids getting a switch. Um, and that was just a hard cultural thing to get through. Um, but... Yeah, uh, my, you know, <clears throat> my parents, particularly my dad, who experienced a great, like, um, uh, w without mincing words, like, um, his dad um, certainly crossed the line into abuse, um, at least from time to time. Uh, and uh, from what I understand, uh, his grandfather uh, was even worse. Um, <clears throat> but, um, point being like, you know, while spanking did occur and it, in cases of, a, you know, like instruments were certainly were used, but like, I was only ever a belt, uh, which, um, like compared to my, uh, grandfather who would have like paddles that had like holes cut out of them to improve airflow so that the speed of it could be increased like it was a step up and uh to my dad's immense credit um after a, a sort of like important moment <laughs> uh which i won't go into the the nitty-gritty details of but suffice it to say there was kind of a moment where i think <clears throat> he had a realization of like no this is bad i shouldn't be doing this and he never he, he like put away the thing he was going to spank me with and then we had a conversation and, you know, I, I never got spanked again after that. Um, uh, so I, I, I definitely think there was a, um, you know, there, there's growth over time as well as people sort of like reframe what, you know, how children have been raised in the past and how they feel about that and, um, and stuff like that. I think it, um, there's there's a lot of um cultural shift <laughs> as well as is perceived like you know as much as i'd like to think that like uh, every parent is like looking at the data and knows like spanking is bad and you shouldn't do it like um you know i know from talking to my son like he has <clears throat> had conversations with friends he's like yeah you know we were all talking about like oh what happens when you get in trouble and uh you know, I just was like, oh yeah, my dad doesn't spank me. And they were like, what? Like all the kids were like, your dad never spanks you for any reason. And they were just like completely baffled. It was like, how is this kid like not crazy bouncing off the walls? Like, you know, disruptive. It's like, well, you know, like uh, turns out that spanking doesn't actually improve, you know, behavior all that, all that much over the long term. Uh, you know, like, but the kids are, are baffled by it. So it's still common enough practice that like the vast majority of kids that my son talks to um, found it a novelty that he doesn't get spanked. So, you know, it's still pretty common practice despite the fact that the science has actually been in pretty well on that for quite a while now. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I had a not in 
you know, not as uh, kind of yeah clear science thing as that. Uh, I, not a thing I really have a strong opinion one way or the other on. Not obviously there yet to have a strong opinion on this, but like my parents, also it was extremely situational for my parents. Uh, my parents were never about grounding. Uh, I never got grounded. And so I always had this conversation with kids I went to school with where they would talk about being grounded for things. And I was like, that's never happened to me. I don't get grounded. That's absurd to me. But now to be fair, we also lived in an incredibly tiny farmhouse. My bedroom was the laundry room. Um, it was like 900 square feet. Um, grounding me was absurd. Like, no, what, yeah, like, yeah. Like, what? I mean, now you can't go anywhere. <laughs> what? Like, like, just... like all the other times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it was. That was just never. Like, I'm sure there was times where it was like, no, you're in trouble. You can't go outside. And also, it was just phrasing of it, right? Because I'm, sh I'm certain there was times where like, you want to go play outside? No, you can't do that. You're in trouble. But, like, they didn't phrase it as grounding, and my parents kind of just thought, like, the whole, like, because it became, it, like, appeared on the scene in the 90s, right, of grounding is the next big thing. Also, like, uh, um, putting kids' noses in corners, timeout. It was timeout was also, like, a big thing that happened in the 90s, which my parents, like, very lightly dabbled with and decided that they thought that was super, like, not okay, and they just didn't do that. But, um, yeah, yeah, um, but, uh... Yeah, I mean, like it was. So they just like it was like the 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 kitschiness of it too. They were just like, "This is silly. If we don't want you to go outside, we'll tell you that, but we're not going to call it grounding." Like you know, I think was definitely yeah, an yeah. element of it. But it led me to having those discussions with kids. Kids just being like, "How you don't get in trouble for anything?" I was like, "Well, well, no. Trust me. Like if I backtalk my dad, I'm going to get a whooping." But. uh yeah, no, yeah. I'm not going to get grounded to like. The, like well, to it's, my it's, room. Really, it's really interesting. Like I mean, we could probably do an entire episode on discipline techniques alone. On uh, like it's really it's really odd and interesting sort of thing. Like how do you teach people? How do you impose false consequences in a way that is like, you know, it has to be sort of by its nature unpleasant enough to make a to make an impact, but it, you don't want to like harm them. <laughs> obviously uh so like like uh it's actually like a almost like a weird subset of the whole debate around criminal justice in general it's like someone does a wrong thing how bad of a thing do you do to them so that they stop doing it but that uh um like so they stop doing it but like not so bad to them that you're a bad person for doing it uh <laughs> And it's, it's actually really weird. Like, for example, like timeout um, is something that I've used occasionally, but that's because my understanding of it, just seeing it in practice was I didn't, I never really used it broadly as like a regular type of thing. It was mostly, I only ever used it in what seemed like the most obviously useful way, which was like, okay, you are in a scenario where really the thing that you need to do is spend some time away from this scenario. You need to you're getting really upset about this game or you're getting really upset about this situation. You need to be separated from it for a while and come at it with a cooler head. We're going to do a timeout where I'm going to put you in a chair. I'm going to hand you a phone that has a timer on it. So you can see when you're not going to be sitting here indefinitely. You're just going to basically take a break away from this thing. And like, that was actually very, very useful, but like, I don't know, like I never put my kids in like a, an hour timeout in the corner or something like that. Like, yeah. Uh, it was only ever for like, you know, at most like five to 10 minute increments uh, as a way of removing them from a situation so that they could uh, calm down, <laughs> like basically like making them take deep breaths and stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, this is um, in as in a like an institute, like in a in a teaching environment. This is the way that I've used. I know I've used I, I haven't phrased it as a timeout, but essentially these as, yeah, you know, you, specifically with interpersonal disagreements, two kids get into an argument over something and it's like, hey, both of you, you're like, you're going to go in that room, you're going to go in this room, and you're going to sit quietly and, you know, I'm going to come in and talk to each one of you, but you need to calm down and you're going to do that, uh, you know, obviously not using that word, uh, not never tell a human being to calm down but you know it's like you need to 
you know, we, we need to de-escalate the situation. We need to, you know, we all need to relax. We're going to do that best if you're separated from each other. I'm going to have a t discussion with each of you, and then you're going to remain here until, like, you know, we're all chill and we're all able to interact again. Definitely has been a valuable thing in certain circumstances. Um, I think for my parents uh, and for me specifically, because, like, the, the instances almost exclusively that I can remember, and, of course, this is a very biased memory because it's me as the kid being punished, um, but, like... <laughs> everything I have in memory of me being punished for a thing was um, attention-seeking situations or hyperactivity. Uh, it was me being bored and getting into mischief because I was bored. And so putting me in timeout in the corner just enhanced the problem and made me more bored and more apt to get into things and yeah. so it was extremely counterproductive and i think that's where like my parents were like oh well, this this doesn't this you know because like you know and that and that gets into like yeah so when we even when we compare to this to the greater discussion of like a criminal justice system i think it's very you know a, a critical element at every step along that is are we achieving fundamental results are we accomplishing a goal and what is our goal and the goal should be to decrease recidivism or the word that i can never say to decrease it repeating from repeating again to cause this crime to not be repeated again to hold this person accountable and make them not do the thing again um does putting them in solitary accomplish those goals oftentimes it doesn't um does uh you know does do, do, yeah yeah and i mean and that's you know, in this situation like that of like, it, you know, for me, it's been it's just kind of by accident. I honestly, I've never even processed it until right this minute. But when a fight breaks out, I find that it is the most effective tool to reducing the situation is to separate um, and allow. And I mean, like, you know, we've talked about this in our anger management uh uh, episode where sometimes one of the most critical things it's not always like sometimes you're withdrawing when you if you're having a fight and then you just withdraw into a bubble sometimes that's counterproductive uh, sometimes what you need to do is talk through it and work through it but also a lot of the times and especially I think in childhood instances it's like a you need a tiny bit of distance from this to recognize that it isn't the largest problem that has ever existed and now once yeah. you came down from that, we can look at this rationally and move forward. <laughs> well, and a lot of it is like helping them like and, and this is where I think like the kids get surprised, like where I think like a lot of like in talking about like why these kids are so surprised that Gerald like because my kid is um, for all intents and purposes, uh, his uh, now uh, close to officially diagnosed. Uh, we have the big report that we basically the last step is to like take it to a pediatrician and have him be like, yep, all these markers that are in this report are what they say they are. And here's your diagnosis. So like one step away, I think, but, um, you know, uh, so with, you know, despite him having ADHD being fairly well behaved, all things considered, uh, emotional regulation issues aside, um, I think like the kids are surprised by that in part because, they have it in their head that like this is the only way that you know this is what how you learn how what's like it, it's challenging their very notion of like how you learn what's right and wrong and like a lot of the times i feel like um parents nowadays struggle a lot specifically because we have a model of children that is like very informed by like a weird artifact of history and like um obviously like i wouldn't go back to like the victorian era and say like uh take all my parenting advice from them but in this particular instance i think there's an interesting uh note that like historically children were not viewed as a special instance of humanity they were viewed as tiny like there was just people and they were tiny people people that didn't have a lot of experience people that didn't have a lot of perspective because they didn't have a lot of experience uh but they were tiny people and they were held to largely like obviously like people gave children more slack <laughs> because they're like oh well they're young uh and they need more experience to really understand but like there was this idea of like they're they're just people and they're just people that need a lot more education and experience and so like that that's kind of an attitude that i've approached with with mine of like you know 
Um, obviously, like this occasionally results in me attempting to explain something to him that's like a little cognitively beyond where he's able to fully grasp the nuances of. And sometimes you have to pare down the complexity of the situation. Uh, you know, so like I'll, I, I will explain, like, here's why it's wrong. Like, this is where this, like, when you do this, it makes me feel stress that stress makes me feel very uncomfortable and very upset and I don't like it. And I would like for you to stop doing that. And like, uh, you know, or, you know, this hurts me when you do this, or, you know, when you do this, you get, it, it destroys things and those things are expensive. And that, that means that dad has to spend time getting the money to replace those things. And it, you know, it's, it, you know, and trying to exp show him the through line of it and he sometimes doesn't get it and sometimes he does you know like you can't explain to a five-year-old the nuanced scenarios in which you are or are not allowed to hit someone you tell a five-year-old you can't hit people and then you shape that over time but like you have to include that you can't hit people because it hurts them <laughs> like they need to understand why what's the ultimate thing that's like the problem and i think there's too many kids that end up learning their morality and way of thinking in terms of like there's just this category of you know good actions and bad actions and they're just you just learn which ones are in which and you just do the good things and don't do the bad things it's like uh you know it makes them very ill-equipped every time they because every single time they approach a scenario that they've never seen before which is constantly for a child uh they have no framework to go okay how do I think about what to do in this scenario? They just essentially act at, at impulse and hope that they land on the right thing and often don't because they're children. Yeah. And I think, and I, we've kind of definitely went a little off topic into discipline. We should definitely I think, oh, yeah, eventually yeah. do an episode just on discipline. And this is, I think my last point before we kind of, uh, uh, into the episode for this week, but, um, I, you know, one of the things that I that kind of runs along line with this, one of the things that I most deeply appreciate my parents for doing for me as a kid was that my mom very much kind of followed that, li that line of thought with me all the way from the beginning of like, this is a tiny human, um, even to the point of like, she, I, you know, she's explicitly discussed with me, like, the name that I got was because this is a name that will work for you when you are a grown adult. This isn't just a cute name for a baby. This is a name for a grown adult person. Um, uh, but also it was like a lot of the education that I got from her, a lot of even just everyday conversations. My mom, and this is a thing I haven't even fully appreciated until I've gotten older. Um, my mom intentionally expanded her vocabulary so that she could speak with me in as wide of a vocabulary as possible so mm -hmm. that I would pick this stuff up. I, I learned this stuff. I, you know, to this day, a lot of my vocabulary comes from that. Uh, explanations of things were not, she would pair, she would give me the full explanation and then pare it down from there. And many, 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 many times I didn't fully um in the moment process and understand a thing right i maybe i didn't get it right then um but often later on i did get it like later on something else would happen and then all of those pieces would just like shift together in my mind and i would have a perspective of something like oh i understand i get that like so uh, specifically with vocabulary it would happen so often that mom would use these big words around me that i like i generally kind of got you know because like we're kids are really good at it under it, it language like you know a fundamental thing that every child is doing early in age is learning an entire fucking language um a thing that adults struggle with kids are all doing and I, you know, I would get like the gist of what big vocabulary words meant, what we call in the Ozarks, these uh, uh, 50 cent words, you know, $1 words. 
um, or two dollar words, however you, I don't know, I've, I've different monet monetization every time, but um, inflation, um, yeah, yeah, the price of words is going up, and <laughs> now they're hundred dollar words, yeah, yeah, um, but uh, yeah, no, until I you mean... get to college, college level words, and they're like ten thousand dollars a word, you know, <laughs> yeah, and but I mean, like, all of these words, I often didn't really understand what the fuck she was saying at the time. But you know what? Even all the way to today, there have to, you know, like post-college me has encountered words of like, yeah, no, I don't know. I've heard that ever since I was a kid. I get the idea of what it means, but I don't really. Oh, OK, that makes sense. It clicks into place. Um, and I yeah, that's something that I very much appreciated that uh, I think kind of comes from that, like treating a kid like a young adult, sometimes shoveling more information at me than I could process, but also being willing to pare that down. Like, you know, didn't just leave it of like, nope, that's the explanation you get. Learn it. Uh, no, it was, you know, like I did got, you know, lessons came in smaller bites for me to process. But going yeah, ahead I, and, I, yeah. I, as a rule, I just like I remember as a kid despising it every single time I heard the phrase because I said so. And while I will fess up that that does like you do occasionally hit that wall where you just kind of have to say it because of either time pressure, uh, it's and compliance is more important than understanding, which happens sometimes, uh, <clears throat> or uh, cognitive limits like this is too complicated. I can't really explain this. You're just going to have to trust me that that's the case. Um, uh, you know, I, I I try to make the threshold where I say that phrase uh hi <laughs> like i have to have good good reason to say this like okay it's i've attempted to give you the thing uh and you know and i think honestly like some some degree of it is like introspection like with anything with like just approaching children in general like uh they're gonna have a lot of questions and they're gonna ask you questions that like you never really thought of before like uh um uh i remember one that's not my personal experience but um has always served as a good example in my mind of a of a kid who was like, um, why do we have to wear shoes into McDonald's? And it was just like thinking about it, and it's like, uh, there's not actually a good reason for that, uh, besides the fact that they say you do. And there's like, well, you know, so you could say that. You could say, like, well, why do because they say you have to. Well, why do they say that immediately? Obviously, they're gonna say that. And then it's like, uh, you know. I think honestly, just like being able to be honest with, with the kids. And I try to do this of just being like, um, look, uh, the reality is there's a lot of stuff in the grown up world. That's like just completely made up rules that don't have any real justification and, uh, you're expected to follow them and there's no good reason for it. But if you don't, everyone will look at you, uh, and will question it. Like if I let you go into McDonald's wearing no shirt and no shoes, everyone will look at me and think that I'm a bad parent. And I don't want to deal with that right now. Uh, it doesn't make any sense and it is very dumb, but, uh, that's how it is. And I don't feel like dealing with the stares of random strangers. So you're going to have to put on your shoes now. <laughs> well, I mean, and honestly, just having the honesty to say that kind of thing as like, you know, there's a lot of things that's like, you can just like, once they've learned that that's a feature of the world, like you stop having to like jump over all kinds of hurdles to explain like rules that are dumb. You can just be like, it's just one of those dumb rules. You're just gonna have to put your shoes on or you're just gonna have to do this. Like, uh, you know, and it saves a lot of grief and a lot of arguing over like this kid who like otherwise is convinced that there's some kind of coherent explanation for all adult behavior. The adults just won't tell me. And it's just like, no, actually, some adult behavior is just completely inexplicable and stupid. Uh, just get comfortable with that because you're going to have to sit with it for the next 80 years. <laughs> you you have to wear shoes because the health department requires it. And the health department requires it because the state is an oppressive and unrealistic and unrelenting machine. More importantly, here's how a Kalashnikov works. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah uh yeah this is you know it's obviously parenting is deep well but you know i think in general if you just like give yourself permission to like uh you know do the best that you can and recognize that sometimes you're gonna have to play loose with the, the advice you get even from like experts um and give yourself that permission to do it with the understanding that you'll 
you know, be doing it from the perspective of someone who is trying their best to take care of this extremely uh, difficult human being. Uh, that's that's the best you can do because that's the best anyone can do, to be honest. Like, it's not a solved problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, the thing I need to work on the most is um, uh, my dark satirical humor jokes that uh, are very funny to other grown adults but are traumatizing and um, definitely send the wrong message to kids like jokes about Kalashnikovs. <laughs> <laughs> you know yes for sure uh that can be but i'll also say that like um kids jump into that a lot sooner than you think that they do <laughs> i have a five-year-old who's like uh like makes jokes about like you know death and killing and like honestly like that's how a lot of us process mortality is like making a kind of game or a joke about it and like I try not to take that away from him, but at the same time, like he does occasionally like cross a line into a type of that joke. That's a little bit too real or a little bit too serious. And we just have to be like, Hey bud, maybe you should stay away from making that joke. <laughs> like just and, no more of that. You're getting a little too into it right now and needs to stop. Like, yeah, <laughs> there has to be a thread of understanding the reality of like, you know, like, I mean, then we've, okay. I'm yeah. You can't try make it trivial. I, well, I'm trying really hard to not dive down too much of a wormhole because we we do need to end the episode. But, um, you know, like we talked about uh, actually the last episode, I think it was, of uh, 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 da, 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 guillotine, like guillotine meme stuff of like, you know what? It's Guillotine memes are hilarious. It's super funny. My little Kalashnikov joke right there was a guillotine meme. But while making them, uh, as adults, adults, we, when making them, we need to have the understanding of, like, <laughs> that's a super terrible situation and actually horrible for everyone involved in violence uh, doesn't actually solve the problem. Changing the system solves the problem, and uh, those two things aren't necessarily correlated. Um, that's, like, a thread of understanding that has to come with life and experience that, like, a kid doesn't have yet. Um, and that's okay. You don't need to have, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have an understanding of why violent revolutions are horrifying and traumatic as a five-year-old. No, I don't want you to have that understanding. Have a little bit of, of innocence. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, like... you want your kid to understand how, how dumb, <laughs> uh, uh, and absurd and, and for morally repugnant, uh, extreme wealth can be, uh, Jeff Bezos has given everyone a fantastic example of making a giant <laughs> penis rocket. And there's nothing that a young elementary school age person thinks is funnier than genitalia. So, uh, you know, my son will go around talking about how dumb Jeff Bezos's giant penis rocket going into space is. And, you know, it's funny. And he gets to learn a little bit about how dumb it is that there's one man who has enough power to create an entire space company so that he can go to space in a giant penis. And, and you know what? And like, it, yes. And I mean, like on a very serious note, and I mean, like I just had actually a friend who had a very similar situation where his like six-year-old daughter remarked about like how it's really silly and makes no sense how you have to pay money for everything. Why? It's just paper. And these are like extremely valid and prescient observations from a new person in the system like i mean we've all like had this happen right like you work in a workplace that is batshit crazy and everybody works there knows it and you all buy into the hegemony and you get it and you just run with it and you forget about it and then you hire a new person and that new person walks in and it says why the fuck are you doing this this way that's insane and you're like oh yeah no Whew, yeah i forgot this was insane you're right that's yeah. children. That is children in our society. Oh, and it's, and it's one of the best parts of children, to be perfectly honest. It's extremely validating as someone who often like finds them finds myself at odd with sort of hegemonic ideas about how things should be. To have a child unprompted just walk up and be like, "This seems dumb," and you're like, "Yeah, thank you." <laughs> 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 I wish everyone else realized that because it's very frustrating to constantly explain to adults how this obviously dumb thing is dumb. 
yes. And speaking of obviously dumb things to adults and children, um, time is a purely social construct and is absolutely <laughs> dumb, and it's my bedtime, and that's stupid. But I'm an adult, and I have to go to bed. So <laughs> thank you yes. for uh, having this. No, 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 no. Thank you for having this conversation with me, Philip. I am actually really looking forward to more episodes like this. Um, folks out there, please uh, send us... Um, your own questions, also your own answers, your own input, your own takes on some of this. Um, let's have some more parenting discussions, some more parenting episodes, some more fatherhood episodes. Um, and let's, uh, let's include some of all of two of you out in the audience in this. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, send us some of your stuff. You can send that to, you know, we're on Facebook. We're on, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at, uh, uh Tommy Ozarks on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter, but you could have my handle uh, uh, you can, when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> because Twitter is a hell website, and I hate it, and I only have one because of history. Yeah, I mean, I really need to get rid of it. I This is my last point before we end the episode, but it's like, yeah, I got it in 2020 because it was a good way to keep up with news when the entire, like, you know... With, protest movements were breaking out in every city i was able to get like immediate instantaneous news about protest movements happening and then i kept the fucking thing and twitter has been a god-awful hellscape ever since and i need to leave it but anyways uh, yeah so uh find us on those hell god-awful hellscapes and send us some dms um <laughs> also, you can support us and the work we do at Red Dirt Collective, uh, patreon.com uh, backslash Red Dirt Collective, um, and support the efforts of Red Dirt Collective. This is Union Not Organizing. Right now, we are um, uh, assisting in the organizing of a union at our local Starbucks. Um, if, you can if you find us on Facebook, uh, you can find out more information about how to support that union, also other unionizing efforts. Uh, and of course, we also do mutual aid efforts and uh, just anything. You, you throw a dart at a board at a bunch of things that could be done, and we probably do it. Um, as long as it, they're vaguely leftist, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. If, if you put fascism up on that board, we're going to try real hard not to hit that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know. But, uh, yeah. So, thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful morning, afternoon, evening, or as it is here, good night.